I loved it. I send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Oh my god. <laughs> I told you it was hard. <laughs> okay. 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 Let me try that again. Um, all right. Welcome to Horror Queers. Each month, we tackle a horror film with LGBTQ plus themes, a high camp quotient, or both. For lifelong queer horror fans like us, there's as much value in serious discussions about representation as there is in reading a ridiculously silly slash fun horror film with a yas queen mentality. Just know that at no point will, will we be getting Baba Shook. Aww. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm riding a high today. Not 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 a real high, just like a good high. Like I'm in a good mood. <laughs> and why? Why pray tell do you feel so good? You finished editing our first episode from last week, which hopefully if people are listening to this, they just listen to the first episode since we're releasing these all at once. And I thought it sounded pretty damn good. Yeah, I'm impressed with the way it came together. Yes, and I'm sure we'll well, maybe we'll hear responses. Again, this is all assuming we get listeners, so we'll find out. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, we are discussing Scream today. But before we jump into it, I want to do minor corrections from last week. And they were both my mistakes. One, <laughs> one, uh, I said that Mission to Mars was directed by Jonathan Demme. That is 100% false. Uh, it is actually Brian De Palma. Oh, yeah. If you're a real stickler for De Palma filmography, or if you, for some reason, really like Mission to Mars... I'm correcting that. Also, <laughs> John Squires is Bloody Disgusting's editor-in-chief, and Brad Miska is credited as the co-founder. There's not another title for Brad's name, so I just wanted to, in case they listen to this, that I, I'm aware of what they do. Yeah, it's probably good that the uh, site that we both write for and the people who are allowing us to be on their podcast network, we should probably know their titles and maybe what they do. And Probably just a little bit. Anyway, so um, yeah, moving on to Scream. Now, I'm sure listeners you're kind of out there and you're like you know horror queers i like the movie scream but what exactly is so queer about it and you know that's a great question there's a lot and we're gonna dive into that today so um for anyone who doesn't know <laughs> scream was directed by wes craven released on december 20th 1996 by dimension films and was a pretty big hit not at first after it only opened with six million dollars but went on to gross 103 million dollars legs for days <laughs> legs for days it, it played from like december 20th all the way through it like stopped in march and then like it was gone for three weeks and then they re-released it it never hit the number one spot it was constantly in the top 10 and i mean that that's a word of mouth movie right there which you know great so what is your relationship to scream like how did you come across scream like what was your introduction to it that's a great question and it's a fun one too because i feel like you and i have been having a lot of way back flashbacks and fun interactions with people because when we announced that we were doing this last year on twitter your response on twitter was massive just an outflowing of love and adoration and i did a poll to see whether it ranked in people's top core franchises and it ended up coming out on top just barely beating the halloween franchise which which I'm surprised it was as close as it was. But, uh, you know, hey, Halloween fans, how you doing? If I didn't piss you off with that introductory entry, then welcome back. Which is actually surprising, though, because I thought it was going to be more of a race between Nightmare and Friday the 13th. Oh, really? I thought it yeah. was going to be between Scream and Nightmare. No, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. Scream is the clear winner. Like, Scream is the best franchise out of all of those movies. <laughs> yes, but sorry. Back to the original question. So my relationship with Scream. So I didn't see Scream in the theaters when it came out in 1996. But, and here we go, me earmarking myself as old once again. <laughs> I was working in the movie theater at the time that it came out. I was like oh. a junior baby high schooler. And I had heard good things about it. My sister went to see it. And when I asked her how it was, she ended up spoiling the ending for me. So I oh. decided then and there to place an eternal curse on her, but also <laughs> to not see it because I was like, well, what's the point? It's a slasher film. And when you know the killer, there's no reason to go and see it. And then the word of mouth kicked in. So I think 
somewhere around February or March when it was still going strong at the theater. I was like, what is the deal with this movie? So I ended up checking it out and obviously loved it. And then I got it on video for Christmas in 1997, right around the time that Scream 2 was about to explode and all that hysteria. And I watched Scream, the original, on VHS every day for the month of December in 1997. Ooh. So I watched it for 30 days (laughs) straight. (laughs) That's okay, though. I've totally done that before with that movie. Which mostly means that I can still quote nearly every line of dialogue from that movie. Well, that's why when I was rewatching it last night, I was like, I don't know why I'm rewatching this. Like, I can play this movie in my head. So mine was a little bit different. I remember I was six. No, I was seven when it came out. I was about to be eight in February of 97. And I was not allowed to go see this movie. I didn't even know what it was, to be honest. <laughs> I was going to say, so hopefully a little too young. <laughs> but I remember um, I was at my grandparents' house. My parents were coming to pick us up because like, we were in- – Maybe it was Christmas break, actually. I don't know. But my my mom came in. My mom doesn't watch horror movies. And she was complaining so much because my mom loves Drew Barrymore. And the only reason my, my dad convinced her to go see this scary movie was because Drew Barrymore was in it and that she was on all the posters. <laughs> yeah, because everybody thought that she was the main star. Exactly. Uh, and I remember her yelling about how she went to go see this movie for her and she dies in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> so, and, I mean, again, like I'm like seven or eight. I didn't see Scream until I was in eighth grade. So... I would have been 13 turning 14. Um, my mom went out of town for a week to go visit her mother. And my dad like rented a bunch of R-rated movies for my sister and I. And I really wanted to see the Scream trilogy because by this time it was 2002. Uh, all of them were out. Um, right. And I did. I watched all of them in a row. And I ended up – this is the funny thing. I ended up watching Scream 3 the most and watching it the whole, like, every day for the whole week that I had all those movies. Oh, dear. I know. But then by the time like my mom started letting me watch R-rated movies, Scream was one of the first DVDs I got. And so then when I got that, I watched it every day for like probably a month. I mean, maybe not, but it was a lot. So I just latched onto it. Hmm. But yeah. So, you know, we wanted to discuss this because it was kind of a it's a big movie and, you know, hopefully people like want to hear us talk about Scream. And one thing that I always come across in Blade Disgusting, I don't know if you do as well, but like I feel like there's a lot of pushback from readers on Scream. Not all readers, but some of them. And a lot a lot of time I see it's like a oh, like Scream is like bleh, it, it all these copycats that it inspired are so terrible. It's like the worst genre, like worst period for horror films and you know, fuck that. Um, I, (laughs) this is just kind of a list of stuff, but I really wanted to get into this and be like, talk about the status of horror in 1996. Again, before we really get into the queerness of this movie. Yeah, because I think people do forget that, yes, it did inspire all those imitators, but... I think as you're about to take us through this, there's a reason that it broke big, and it's because horror was not in a good place. And I feel like people forget what horror was like in the mid-90s. Well, that's the thing, too. Like, the late 90s, like the post-scream, sure, it wasn't the most creative time for horror movies, but it was infinitely, like, better than the early 90s. Sands for, like, Silence of the Lambs and Misery, you know? Mm -hmm. So, just let me take you on on a journey. (laughs) So let's go through some print stuff. So Wes Craven's film before this was Vampire in Brooklyn, flopped in 1995 with $19.8 million. Also, that's a terrible movie. John Carpenter's (laughs) last movie, not related, but like horror horror master. John Carpenter's last movie was Village of the Damned in 1995, which flopped with $9.4 million. (laughs) And that movie is Camp Gold. It's not good, but it's fun. (laughs) It's fun. I wish it was a little bit bloodier. Because it's not very bloody, and it could have been. But the score is really good. Yeah, always. Anyway, but let's look at our franchises. The country, the world, was going through some franchise fatigue with horror films. For theatrically released, The Last Child's Play was Child's Play 3. It grossed $14.9 million in 1991. We had Jason Goes to Hell in 93. Uh, I'll skip all the budgets, but just know that all these movies were pretty much flopping hardcore. Jason Goes to Hell was the last Friday the 13th. Uh, The last Nightmare on Elm Street, also Wes Craven, was Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 94. Flopped. Ugh, underrated classic, though. Oh, yeah, it's it's great. Like th- This is one of the few good movies on this list. Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers in 1995. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. It says 95, but I don't think it actually... I think it premiered at film festivals in 95. I don't think it got a release until 97 after Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey were famous. Yeah, it was... I think they waited for Jerry Maguire, didn't they? 
Yes. Um, side note, though, I just saw that for the first time, and I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. <laughs> Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, which is Candyman 2. I've never seen it, but that was 1995. Not good. Directed by Bill Condon, by the way, of yeah. Twilight Breaking Dawn fame. Oh, uh, God. Come on. <laughs> give him more credit than that. <laughs> no, he directed other stuff, and I, I actually do know what he directed. I just can't remember off the top of my head but he's he's in a lot of good stuff gods and monsters oh, dream, dream girls oh yeah and dream girls he did dream girls so he's come a long way <laughs> we remember him <laughs> for very different things <laughs> no i just thought that the, the breaking dawn thing was a real blip on his radar and so <laughs> i was like that's really random but then i saw Candyman farewell to the flesh and i was like oh well you know maybe he deserved that i don't know anyway the last of our theatrically released ones is hellraiser bloodline the fourth Hellraiser in 1996. And one that I'm probably going to make you do one of these days. Uh, I've seen it. I saw it this year for the first time, and I liked it less than three. Three was a lot of fun for me. Four is not as fun, but it's still kind of bizarre in a way that makes it fun to watch. It's the best franchise in space entry. Um, Disagree, because Jason X is the best franchise in space entry. But we can discuss that whenever we do that in an episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> Psycho 4, a Showtime movie in 1990. The Omen 4, The Awakening, a Fox movie in 1991. And then, finally, we have closing out our direct-to-video sequels for franchises. Silent Night, Deadly Night 5 in 1991. Prom Night 4, <laughs> Deliver Us from Evil, 1992. Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence, 1993. Phantasm 3, bleh, Lord of the Dead in 1994. Leprechaun 3, 1995. Howling New Moon Rising, a.k.a. Howling 7, in 1995. Tremors 2, which I like, uh, is mm -hmm. in 1996. Children of the Corn 4, The Gathering, 1996. And finally, Amityville Dollhouse, a.k.a. Amityville the Horror 8, in 1996. That is a shit list. <laughs> Holy cow. So, I mean, you know, horror was not in the best place. So if, if anyone anyone insult scream for what it did to horror i i mean fuck them like i don't even know what to say like what 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 is that they really wanted a mini film nine apparently <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, honestly i haven't seen half of those movies i mean i've seen the theatrically released ones i've, I've seen all those except for Candyman too but um yeah like i mean it you know we were going through that period like of the late 80s early 90s where like, all the all the franchises were like kind of in there they were dying and horror was dead. I mean, literally dead. Well, and you you skipped over a lot of the the production budget and the theatrical grosses. Rightfully so. If people want to look them up, I mean, you you gave them a blanket statement. They all flopped. So yeah. really, it was important for people who were making horror films. This was not that typical horror time period where the genre was a license to print money. I mean, you can make these films on the cheap, but you have to be grossing more than six to nine million dollars theatrically. That's not even covering your print or your production cost. Obviously, like, you know, uh, one of them made like 15 million dollars. Like that's, you know, it's probably 30 million today. Don't quote me on that, but I'm guessing. <laughs> Corrections corner coming. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the inflation was immune. Um, <laughs> So yeah, don't quote me on it, but that's probably what it is. But it's not good. It's no, not good no. regardless. I don't yeah, I don't really know what the budgets were for a lot of these. I mean, I know it wasn't a lot, but it was probably more than five million dollars. You know, there was no Blumhouse back then. So when Scream came around, it was not high on people's radar, and then it did really well. It got really good reviews. It made a buttload of money, and obviously a sequel came out. I think less than a year later. I think it was like like a week less than two uh, than a year later. <laughs> Yeah, which is crazy. That's the kind of turnaround that we see on the Saw franchises and the Paranormal franchises. And sequels to those films were not half as good as what Scream 2 and arguably even Scream 3 delivered. Yeah, I mean, I know we're not talking about the franchise as a whole, but it, Scream 4 does have better reviews than Scream 3, but it made a lot, like, less than half the money that Scream 3 did in 2000 compared to 2011. But yet, yeah, no, the first two were very well regarded. And again, when I see people diss Scream 2, I'm like, well, you know what got better reviews in the first one? But yeah, no, good box office. Reviews were good. Entertainment Weekly gave it an A-. Roger Ebert gave it three stars. Do you think, Joe, that people's reception of let's say scream let's just say the first one has mm -hmm. changed in recent years what's interesting is so when you mentioned that you get pushback from people yeah i think it's interesting that 
people are attacking it from this revisionist lens, right? We're mm-hmm. looking at it through a present day that has arguably gone through multiple cycles of slasher uh, reiterations, for lack of a better term. So it's really easy to dismiss it and say, oh, well, this is the film that gave us that glut of terrible teen horror comedies, and it's responsible for the death of the genre until we got to things like torture porn or J-horror and that kind of stuff. Like, it's really mm-hmm. easy to look back on it and say, oh, that's a film that started it all. Wah, wah, wah. I hate it. But as you've rightfully pointed out, not only did it come along at a time period where it was basically a desolate wasteland, but you can't argue that a film that quite literally changed the genre, it did something and it did it so well that it captured the zeitgeist. And whether you like it or not, it did change the course of horror history. Like it proved that the genre was still profitable. It changed the way that they were marketed. It changed the way that they were cast. So not for nothing. Like you can say that you don't like it, but you can't dismiss it. Well, and maybe it's like, oh, they don't dislike Scream. They dislike what Scream did for the genre or like the copycats it inspired. And I'm like, well, then why don't you dislike Halloween? Because Halloween which I love, I think is an amazing movie, but Halloween inspired a slew of copycats. Friday the 13th is to Halloween what, like, I know what you did last summer is to Scream. Mm -hmm. And it makes me laugh when they're like, oh, it inspired a bunch of fake, like, unoriginal copycats. I'm like, but that's literally what the entire Friday the 13th franchise is. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's because they like the more non-meta, like, basic, like, straightforward slasher franchise. Okay, I get that. Meta humor is not your thing. But you can't hold this movie responsible for that. It's you people who went to go see this movie in theaters and made it make a bunch of money. And Hollywood listened because they were like, oh, these other movies that are flopping with less than $15 million domestic grosses. And this other one that made over $100 million. Like, I don't I don't know what they want. They want from this. And this is the point where we should probably make the obligatory blanket statement that we'll undoubtedly end up making nearly every week, which is that if you don't like this movie, it's completely fine. Trace and I may not get along with you all that well, but I was going to say, like, I mean, well allowed. <laughs> I, I'm of the mindset that everyone has an opinion and you can totally have that opinion. There are very few opinions that are wrong. This <laughs> where you're going to go with this. No, I mean, oh, fuck. I know I, you can dislike Scream. It's fine, but you better have a good reason. And if it's just you don't like meta humor or I don't I don't I, I can't think of another reason why someone wouldn't like it, honestly. <laughs> but sure. Okay, I'll go for that. But I'm just going to stop because I <laughs> I'm just going to go on. But you're right. Yeah. Now. If you don't Let's like this movie, on. it's totally fine. It's fine. <laughs> So, did you still find it scary? That's a tough question. To be honest, at this stage in my horror movie watching career, I don't really find any films scary. And I'm using air quotations because, of course, no one can actually see me. I still find the film effective as hell. I think it, it still holds up. I think the writing is still good. You know, some of the references, they haven't aged quite as well. Mm hmm. Shout out to a local Toronto initiative called Drunken Cinema. It's basically you do drinking games while watching the film. And I know for sure that one of the little cards that you get that tells you when to drink is going to be every time the characters say cellular telephone, because (laughs) that shit is hilarious. And it's never just cell phone. It is never just cell (laughs) phone. No, it's always cellular telephone. (laughs) Why do you have a cellular telephone, son? Everybody's got them, Cher. (laughs) Yes, Billy, you are correct. Everyone does got them. And, you know, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think I ever really found Scream particularly scary. I found it always entertaining. But I do think that opening scene with Barrymore, which I, I won't belabor the point of how great the scene is, but it is really scary. And, like, there's little parts, like, when he says he wants to see what her insides look like. Like, that that is a line that is really disturbing to me. And, like, the way he says it. Mm-hmm. And a great sound cue that follows it. Great sound cue. And, and also, like, the sound of her being gutted, like, when the parents or the mom is hearing over the phone, and, like, you hear that, like, it's really jarring. Mm-hmm. Even today, it's still kind of something where I'm like, ooh, that really sucks. This is a little thing that I always notice, but, like, he's asked her something. I think it's something he's talking about, like, what her favorite scary movie is, which, I mean, you know, whatever. And she answers, and he's like, yeah. And it sounds like he's, like, salivating when he says yeah, and it's really creepy. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the the voice guy who did it. Roger L. Jackson. There we go. Honestly, for a performance that you literally never see across any of the four films, that is, to me, probably one of the best vocal performances because it is fun, it's clever, at times a little bit sexy, but it's scary when he wants to be. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, like, I agree. Like, none of it's like really super scary. I find it tense, not scary. And also that there's not a lot of jump scares, which surprised me. Like, I always forget that there's not a ton of jump scares in the screen. So enough of like the fun factoids. Like, Let's talk about why we're covering this movie. <laughs> okay. Do you want to start? How about I do a Cole's notes and then we can fill it in afterwards. Okay, done deal. Okay. So as we talked about last episode, as well as over the course of the horror queer articles on Bloody Disgusting, there's a bunch of different ways to interpret the meaning of queer. So in this case, Scream is written by Kevin Williamson. He is a out gay man. Right then and there, we've got an opportunity to look at this through a queer lens because he's bringing some aspect of his queerness into the writing process. So that's one. The big one that people notice when they start to pay attention to it is obviously the Billy Stew dynamic. So the idea that they are secret gay lovers, which really comes out in the climax of the film. The bitchiness and the, you know, yes. the witty crackle of dialogue, particularly in the Tatum and Gail Weathers characters. And then just overall, the metatextual references, I think, really resonates with a queer audience. Yeah. So those are the ones that I came up. Those are the exact four that I came up with. Yeah, I had Billions too. I had Kevin Williamson being gay. I had witty, like meta humor. And then yeah, these strong I hate I mean, I don't hate using the word bitchy because that's what Gail Weathers and to an extent Tatum are. I mean that like as the biggest compliment, like these strong bitchy female characters, and a strong not bitchy female character like Sydney Prescott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of the men in the movie, Sands, maybe Dewey. Actually, no, even Dewey are either underwritten. Well, I want to say Billy and Sue are underwritten until like the ending, and then Dewey is like written as kind of like a buffoon. Even Sydney's dad, and I actually wrote in my notes when I was watching it, I was like, in the beginning when he's like, I swear I heard screaming, and she's like, no, it's fine. And he's like, no, I swear I did. And she goes, no, 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 it's fine. I'm like, he really doesn't seem to care that his daughter was screaming, and she didn't even care to make up an excuse that was like, oh, I saw a spider. Whatever. I, I digress. I would be more worried if I was that father. <laughs> well, this is a film filled with red herrings, but also weird father figures, <laughs> which maybe we can get into when we get into the Billions 2 stuff, but yeah. essentially... The sheriff, uh, Principal Henry, and Sidney's dad are basically, they all exist to either be killed or to be potential red herrings as the killers. Right. Whereas the females are all like, so well drawn out. Like, again, even Tatum, sh she's given a lot to work with. Even Drew Barrymore, who we're with for 11 or 12 minutes, you get to know her better than, you know, some of these male characters. Yeah. But uh, I also caught some things with Williamson. Like, some witty dialogue, yes. But, like, there were things, like, um, and this always sticks out to me, is whenever Ghostface calls her, and he, he's, like, after Billy goes to jail. And he's, like, looks like you fingered the wrong guy. And I was, like, that's just a really strange phrase <laughs> to use. And maybe it's I'm dating it. Like, I don't know. Maybe it was a common thing to say in the 90s. What's well, kind of like an old school gumshoe term. It is. But literally all I think about is her fingering Skeetal Rich. <laughs> that I'm just drinking water. <laughs> that's all. That's all I think about every time. And I know that, like, it's my, my mind's in the gutter, blah, 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 blah. And then, like... Is it um, just because she fingers him at the end? I don't... She sticks her I finger in him? Oh. Oh. Maybe. Ooh. I've never caught that before. But that's very true. So, at first, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> she does not finger him. <laughs> oh, you didn't watch that deleted scene? No. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I, again, I just think it's a weird word. And I don't know if it's necessarily queer or gay or whatever, but it's a, a unique choice of words. And also when the girls are harping on Sydney's mom in the bathroom and they're like, she's got her own bubble butt boyfriend, Billy. <laughs> like, again, I just like bubble butt such like a, a unique choice of words. But it just it, it's just it sounds so uh, I'm going to say it sounds so gay. I mean, again, I mean it in a good way. It reminds me of the word choices that you would hear in Heathers. Yes. 
which is very much like a gay icon kind of film. Like it's very quotable, weird, twisted, dark humor, sexualized, and again, aimed at a teen audience. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's weirder than Scream. I, I love Heathers too. I mean, it's, it's a lot weirder than Scream. And Kevin Williamson, he's, I, that's kind of his trademark, you know? Like, I, I, has he ever branched away from doing like these meta-ish kind of self-aware properties? I, I've, full disclosure, I've never seen Vampire Diaries at all. Vampire Diaries ended up being more Julie Plex show, which I had completely forgotten that she was Wes Craven's assistant on this movie. Oh. So she she and Kevin Williamson must have spent a lot of time together when they were making these movies because they ended up becoming showrunners and producing partners for things like The Vampire Diaries, and now she's gone on to have her own kind of mini CW empire. We can kind of, I guess, go into the meta humor next and the witticisms. Why do you think that we as gay men, why do we latch onto this kind of humor, this metatextual, like self-aware, winking, referencing humor? It's a good question. I wouldn't say it's an exclusively queer thing. I think that as a horror community, people like self-referential and metatextual humor because it essentially acknowledges the fact that if you pay attention or if you are a connoisseur of the genre, if you've been watching a bunch of these different types of films and then you see or hear, you know, oh, that sounds like a Wes Carpenter flick, (laughs) then you're like, oh my god, I get that reference. Like, I'm in. I'm part of this film. I can relate to it. It's speaking to me in my language. And I think for queers, we're used to seeking out coded language in different types of things. So we're arguably more trained to be hearing things that other people may have overlooked or they may have misconstrued. So particularly in the case of Scream, where it's built around a central mystery of Sydney uncovering not just the fact that her boyfriend and his best friend are lying killers, but also that she really had no clue who her mother was, or she had repressed it to a state that she couldn't accept it. So the whole film is her like, pulling out these nuggets from what other people are saying and processing it. And to me, that kind of speaks a little bit of a queer experience where you're like, I'm latching onto that coded dialogue or I'm picking up on that word and processing it in a different mm-hmm. kind of way. Really like watching it last night, I was like, wow, it's really kind of a miracle that Sydney's not more fucked up. Her mom raped and murdered. And a year later, she finds out that her boyfriend, well, first she finds out her mom was an adulteress, like constantly, just like cheating on her father all the time. So not the person she was a tramp. Like, yeah, (laughs) she was a tramp. Maybe she's a slut, just like her mother. I love those girls. And and then, like, you know, she finds out her boyfriend was only dating her just to murder her later, just as a sick game. Yeah, she's like his killer beard. Yes, she fucked her psychotic boyfriend, lost her virginity to the man that killed her mother. Um, Mm -hmm. goes through this traumatic experience. Like, I'm like, if anything, she's like very well adjusted by Scream (laughs) 2. That actually did stand out to me. I was intrigued by just how innocent Sydney is in this film, but also, I mean, she's still a fighter, but really she's not, she's not the brittle woman that we catch up with in Scream 2. Here she's very much a regular high school girl. And then Kevin Williamson essentially just puts her through the fucking ringer. Yeah, Sydney's great. But um, I, I, <laughs> I realized I digressed again there. And that's something that I'm just you're just gonna have to get used to. But I'm going to rewind going back to the meta humor. I, I do think that like sassiness, wittiness, like elevated humor, ugh, elevated sex no. too. I know, I know, I know. Strike that word I know. from your vocabulary. I will never. I think it's like I just saw someone complaining about using the word elevated horror, to, the phrase elevated horror today, and it was just on my brain. Anyway, when you're growing up, you know, you're in the closet or, or if you're out and like you're being made fun of, or if you're in the closet and you're being made fun of, you know, as a kid, you kind of have to learn to kind of snap back. And if you're not, I, I wasn't like physically like a large person, like in terms of like muscle tone i wasn't a fighter so you kind of have to learn to snap back with your words and i tried to become like, wittier and like with my retorts and stuff as a way to kind of mask my insecurities mm-hmm. um and i mean like i'm still like a little insecure like at 29 but like i'm definitely a lot more comfortable in my own skin but that hunt to like always be kind of smart and sassy just to like get by has kind of stuck with me and i think that's why i gravitate towards movies like that it's interesting. Very confessional. I can't relate because as I mentioned, I didn't, I mean, I didn't come out until I was essentially beyond that. So right, it didn't work for me in that way. But I think 
wordplay and finding ways when you, when you don't have the ability to fight back in the traditional means in terms of physicality. Yeah. I do think, you know, words are your only other option. And there's something about being smart and being sassy and being clever that can be used defensively as a strategy, but also as an assault. Like, I'm going to cut you off before you can do anything because I'm going to humiliate you with my words. Yeah. On that note, too, like, we are both talking from our, our like, perspectives and anything that we say that may seem like a generalization of the queer community or, like, that we're trying to speak for everyone, so those are all, like, suppositions, we're supposing <laughs> that this is the case in the hopes that we don't offend anyone. Because we are looking to offend, but it's mostly just the Elijah Wood fans. So. <laughs> oh, God. That's a callback. <laughs> I know. Um, listen to episode one if you don't get that reference. But yeah, no, I mean, like, there are a lot of people that don't like this humor. Like, they want just straightforwardness. And I guess I've never really understood why people are so averse to that kind of humor or... Even if it's not humor, like, because you can be metatextual, like, without being humorous. But, like, a lot of people don't want that at all. Like, they want to be like, no, 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 I'm watching a movie. I don't want the movie I'm watching to know that it's a movie. As opposed to treating it as a fantasy where people are witty and they've always got that rejoinder that they can use and they don't stumble over their words like they do in real life. Right. And trust me, I aspire to, like, speak like Kevin Williamson's characters all the time. Uh, that is probably my goal i just want to be able to be as smart like that all the time as i say like about every other phrase um <laughs> but i do think that queer culture has an affinity for this and i'm not really sure why <laughs> but i guess we kind of touched on some of those things yeah i don't know that people are actively thinking about okay i need to have a sassy comeback for certain people, it also very much fits their persona. You know, it's the same reason why something like Drag Race has taken on a life of its own, because it's got catchphrases, it's got things that are memorable, it's got characters that pop, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's one of the things that Scream does really well. It not only makes you care about its characters, but it makes them memorable, and it gives them dialogue that is you know, it's fun and it's vivacious and it's playful and it's campy. And those are all things that are also associated with queer culture. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like like you said, all these characters are so well like drawn out. And compare that to any slasher movie, I, I, even a Friday the 13th movie that, you know, granted, they're all paper thin, but like people like latch on a lot of those characters in those movies. Scream has a very well-rounded set of characters, not even taking the franchise as a whole, like just the first one. Very well-rounded. And why don't you tell me why you love Gail so much? Okay, all right, so yeah. I know we talked about last week how I like these bitchy characters. And at the time, Courtney Cox was not offered the role. She sought out production. Like She was finishing up season two of Friends, and she wanted to, like, play a bitch. And they didn't want her to until she auditioned. And whatever need she felt to go seek out that role because she wanted to play a bitch, I feel that need all the time whenever I see any actress. And I'm like, I want to see them play a bitch. And this kind of goes into another trajectory because a lot of people don't like those sassy, bitchy characters. They're, like, they're unlikable. They're kind of sassy and they're not very nice. But it's like, it's all kind of in jest with Gail Weathers. I mean, it's not. She is a bitch. Or is she just opportunistic? I think that's what Sydney says about her, actually. Opportunistic tabloid twit. Something like that. <laughs> I don't aspire to talk like Kevin Williamson characters. I aspire to be Gail Weathers. That, that is... <laughs> I want to be Gail Weathers. Not really in this one so much, I guess. Like, there's not really a lot of campiness to Gail Weathers. And it doesn't really revel in her bitchiness like the later movies will, specifically three and four. But she's just, like, a character you... Well, again, I want to say a character you don't see in slasher movies, but there are bitches in slasher movies all the time. So... But I think the difference is, is that she's not just a bitch, right? I mean, the thing that Scream does so differently from a lot of these other slasher films is a it's got two killers which provides you with that unexpected twist at the end yeah but in the in reality it also has two final girls and if you want to press it you could say two final girls and a final boy but right. randy's honestly kind of useless oh i thought you battle. i thought you were referring to dewey to be honest but okay dewey's out he's out of commission for like the entire finale <laughs> yeah i guess that's true and he was supposed to die like he like they added that gurney clip at the end like after the fact 
Yeah, because he played well with audiences. As I think Wes yeah. Craven knew he probably would, based on yeah. David Arquette's performance. But in reality, I mean, the reason to me that Gail works is because you've got Sydney and she's the more traditional heroine. So she is the good girl. She does the things that final girls are supposed to do, whether or not you want to talk about playing with the conventions and blah, blah, blah. Gail Weathers is the kind of character that should get a brutal death about halfway through this movie. Yeah. But she's not just a bitch, right? She's opportunistic. She's bitchy. She's catty. She goes after what she wants. But then she also gets this interesting redemptive arc. She gets a love story and she proves her mettle in the end. Like, she comes out fighting hard. Well, and she technically kills Billy. And honestly, I feel like that's the only reason they added that last bit at the end where he, like, pops back up and then Sydney shoots him in the head is because they wanted to give Sydney the final blow. But, yeah, like, Gail saves the day. Mm -hmm. And she's a fan favorite character. But, But, again, I've seen that with a lot of gay men that I've talked to or interacted with on social media or just talked to in person. But, you know, there's a lot of people, but, like, that don't like her. Because they're like, oh, she's a bitch. She's not likable. So why do we give her a pass, you know? Or are we just like kind of to a point where we're like, what's the word? Not, not progressive. It's something like forward thinking. <laughs> For, forward thinking. Yes, we are forward thinking in that this woman is not a bitch. She has to fight in a male-dominated world and fight tooth and nail to get to the top and like get to where she wants to be. So she has to be like kind of bitchy about it. And I, I ran into this at one of my old jobs where like I would get kind of sassy with customers and like, you know, they'd really like it and they'd like, kind of work with me. But one of my coworkers who was a woman, she would do the exact same thing. And she would get customer complaints about her. And I was like, that's that old trope of like, oh, a man is, you know, funny and earnest or whatever, but a woman is a bitch. And I feel like this what befalls this character. Yeah, quite possibly. I can understand why people could misread her. I feel like the film gives us all of these cues. But I've always related to Final Girls. Like, I I feel mm-hmm. that they're tailor-made for female identification, but also particularly gay men identification. I don't know... I don't know how the lesbians feel about this film. But I've often felt like female audiences and gay male audiences love a Final Girl because she is our proxy. Like, mm-hmm. we identify with her. We are her. And when she triumphs or when she overcomes it's a celebration for all of us are you saying like us gay men are we are the final girl or is like the audience the final girl or are you trying to say like oh like that's why gay men gravitate towards horror is because of this final girl like the the trope well and this is an interesting thing so we've we've had a number of conversations you and i offline about the scream franchise its longevity and whether or not people relate to the films like the four of them as a franchise because of Ghostface. Right. But I feel like the yeah. franchise is different from the other main three franchises where the fans are more traditionally rooting for the killers. So when we did our Nightmare on Elm Street 2 entry on Freddy's Revenge mm-hmm. back in 2018, yeah, we had a quick debate about whether or not queer audiences like Freddy because he's quippy. So it's the same oh, yeah. kind of the flip version of the conversation we're having right now. Yeah. And I would argue that queer audiences do like the Scream franchise because Ghostface is verbal and he's fun and savage. But also we have these great final girl characters, like these strong female characters Mm -hmm. that we don't always see in these other franchises where they are fleshed out. They are good characters. They've got hopes and dreams. And we spend a lot of time getting to know them and investing in them. So in a way, it's like a double whammy. But I don't know that straight audiences feel the same way about the Scream franchise. Like, you don't see people getting super riled up for Ghostface in the way that you do, you know, the the hysteria that we saw over Michael Myers in Halloween when yeah. the new Halloween came out, right? People weren't like, well, okay, that's a tricky example because people were very excited for Jamie Lee, but they were also simultaneously very excited for Michael Myers. Well, and like, also, yeah, you're right, though. I mean, in, in Halloween, though, you're rooting for him to kill someone, not Laurie Strode, but you are rooting for him to, like, kill people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he does that a lot off screen in that movie. Whereas in Scream, I would argue you're invested in who's going to make it out of these films alive. Well, I also think the whodunit aspect can add to that. It's true. Yeah, these are films based on red herrings. It's apples to oranges with, like, Halloween and Scream. I, 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 but I get your comparison. 
But I think the whodunit aspect definitely adds to that. Yeah, there's that scrappiness in Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers and Tatum that, as a community, I feel like gay men really just hold really high in a very high regard. And maybe it's because of this inner struggle that, like, some of us have had to go through. And it's nice to see, like, someone else kind of exhibiting that struggle. Not the same struggle, obviously, but a struggle on screen. So, anyway, Billions too. <laughs> I just went off on my tangent. So, do you want to start with this one? <laughs> sure. Okay, so there's essentially two different arguments, and a lot of them stem from the two different motivations that Billy and Stu give. So I watched the film with commentary, and Kevin Williamson said that the decision that he made about the motivations came from different studio notes. So one was the idea that having no motivation is scary, and the other was having some motivation like elaborated on that's really personal is scary. So he essentially gave one motivation to each of the killers. Now, authorial intention aside, because who gives a fuck what Kevin Williamson says? It's all about yeah. how we choose to interpret this. You can read Billy as a homo repressed mama's boy, or as Sydney calls him, a pansy ass mama's boy. Which is like one of the best lines of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he his motivation is implicitly tied to his relationship with his mother can be interpreted as very eatable and then there's Stu who claims that he has no motivation but then when you start to look at the way that Matthew Lillard portrays him physically and some of his vocal mannerisms throughout the film and that kind of stuff you could argue that Stu is in love with Billy I totally agree with that. And, you know, it's not something I ever paid attention to or read into much in my early days of watching this movie. But, yeah, there's definitely something going on there. I also love they gave Billy a motive and they gave, didn't give Stu one because they literally call that out in the movie, too, is like, what's scarier, motive or no motive? Like, OK, let's get even more meta, Kevin Williamson. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Just put your studio notes in the script. But, yeah, like, what was their plan afterward? What was tomorrow going to look like for these boys? Was there a next step? Did they have another anniversary plan the following year? <laughs> right. Or are they going to run away and shag? Who knows? It's just all very, and they're very touchy-feely with each other. And also you have a scene where they are just penetrating each other, not with their mm -hmm. penises. Phallically with knives. <laughs> yes. Like just constant. And they're doing it over and over and over. And it's painful, like, you know, anal sex can be. And it's very homoerotic. I mean, it's disturbing. But it's very homoerotic. Indeed. So, listeners, if you think that Trace and I are reaching on this, I'll give you some reading homework to do. So, you can look up a book by a guy named Michael DeAngelis, and I'll link to this in the show notes. But he wrote a book called Reading the Bromance, Homosocial Relationships in Film and Television. And he's got a chapter in this book that's specifically about homoeroticism and subversive queerness. And he categorizes both Billy and Stu using Freudian analysis. I don't agree with all of his interpretations, but Nor should you one interesting to. thing that he does uh, reference is the fact that the film can be traced back to the Leopold and Loeb murders. Do you know this one, Trace? I, I do not know this one. <laughs> okay, so this is a famous real-life murder. It's two queers uh, who essentially murdered a younger boy named Bobby Franks in 1924, and they did it to prove that they could get away with the perfect murder because they thought that oh. they were smarter than everybody else. And if this also sounds familiar, it's because it's the inspiration for countless other books and horror films, including Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Oh, huh. And thinking about it through this lens, when I was doing the rewatch for Scream, I was like, yeah, Billy and Stu think that they are smarter than everybody because they can get away with this. But then when you put it through that lens where it's like, oh, these are lovers who are also thinking that they can get away with this murder heist. Yeah. It gives it that added dimension. Yeah, I can see that. Like, absolutely. The people that accuse us of reaching, I, I don't know. Have you read our articles? <laughs> They're also probably not listening. We're at 57 minutes into this podcast right now. So, I mean, if they've made it this far, like, they're in for the ride. So, I, I think we're good. Mm-hmm. 
So some other interesting things that came up was the fact that Billy references Anthony Perkins in Psycho. So the line, we all go a little mad sometimes. The film is packed with different references to different horror films. But the fact that he says Anthony Perkins, Psycho. Anthony Perkins is, of course, a noted homosexual who was not publicly out so mm-hmm. you can make that line and then the fact that billy is outfitted or costumed like james dean from rebel without a cause which is also historically interpreted as a closeted queer uh, performance in that film but also james dean is you know people have speculated ad nauseum about whether or not he was actually gay see i don't know what i would do without you i would never have made that connection because i've never seen a james dean movie which oh makes me sound i know it made- <laughs> <laughs> I know that makes me sound really ignorant, and it's not because I've never tried to find one, but like I just I have not watched one. I'm not opposed to it. Rebel Without a Cause is like the quintessential teen film of the 50s. Okay, but yeah, I mean it's maybe not really the way that um, Skeet Ulrich portrays the role, but the way that uh, Matthew Lillard acts in the movie. It's mm-hmm. very over the top. I don't know if I would use the phrase campy, but it is. It is a big performance, a lot bigger than kind of everything else in the movie that it does stand out. And, you know, that that can work for some people that sometimes won't work for people. It does work for me. Shocker. But it definitely kind of leans into that camp aspect that queer culture has really taken on. And whether that was intentional or not on his part, I don't know. But I know that Lillard um, ad-libbed a lot and kind of made up a lot of stuff during that finale Mm -hmm. so i mean it probably wasn't intentional but it definitely like comes across that way and even uh, in the video store scene earlier when he's kind of hovering over randy when he's playing with his earlobe yes yes playing with his earlobe it is again that's not a thing uh, maybe i'm wrong but that's not a thing guys just do (laughs) i mean it's there and i would love to talk to matthew a little bit about it to like see if like if he ever Did he thought, play it that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm sure the answer is no. But if he did, like, that that would be very, very fascinating. But then if they are gay, like, gay, mentally damaged killers, you know, is that something that, that Scream kind of pushes? Well, it's interesting. And if people do check out that DeAngelis article, he does make the suggestion that this is almost like an, a repressive text against queer sexuality. So I'm not going to go into all of the details, but he essentially associates Sydney as he calls her, oh shit, he calls her a fury instead of a final girl. So he calls her a fury girl. And he suggests that she's doing that conservative rhetoric where she's reasserting the condemnation on queerty and deviant behavior by punishing Stu and Billy. Huh. But again, psychoanalyst. See, yeah, but I'm choosing to believe that that was not, I don't read it that way because <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> obviously, yeah, there, there's a lot of queerness inherent in the entire Billy Stew thing. And, you, you know, obviously you don't really have that as the franchise goes on, but it does maintain the witticisms, the bitchiness and all the, you know, fantastic things we love about it and us gays. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. We love it. So it's I mean, it's a it's a near perfect film. The only thing that's more perfect is Scream 2. Um, Hot hot take. But yeah, okay. Well, so I know that's kind of the bulk of our queerness. Do you have any closing thoughts on Scream? I have a game that I want to play with you in the spirit (gasps) of the film or potentially the Saw franchise. Trace, do you want to play a game? I do want to play a game. Okay. So the game is Fuck, Mary Kill, Scream style. So... Your options are Billy, Dewey, or Randy. Um, ooh. I deliberately did not pick Stu. Yeah. You can read into that what you will. Fuck Billy. Um, Mary Randy, I guess. Like, we're both movie bros, so I guess I could get along with it. And kill Dewey. Interesting. Okay. I would fuck Billy, marry Dewey, because uh-huh. he seems nice. And then Randy is like, why do you need another version of yourself? So kill Randy. Well, if you're a narcissist, like (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) but you are (laughs) like we've established. (laughs) Okay. Do you have another round or was that your round? That was it. Unless you want to do the girls. (laughs) No. But as a gold star gay, I figured you would not want to. Okay. Well then here, I'll I'll do a trivia question for you. Okay. 
Okay, so we all know that horror movies, especially those in the 90s, are famous for casting teenage characters with actors who are not teenagers. Oh, yes. Okay. Can you tell me the ages of the cast members? I cannot, but I can tell you who the youngest one is. Who is the youngest one? Drew Barrymore. Yes, you are right. She was 21. Do you know who the oldest is? Um, I mean, I'm guessing we're not including Courtney Cox or David Arquette. Uh, no, but, uh, if we were including David Arquette, he's not the oldest. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Of the teenagers, and again, I'm using air quotes, I'm gonna go with Matthew Lillard. So, both Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich were 26 when this movie was filmed. Okay. Um, David Arquette was 24, Nev Campbell was 22, and so was Rose McGowan. <laughs> wow. And Courtney Cox was 32. Right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that Skeet Ulrich is a little bit older, you know, specifically thinking about that upper torso area. Oh, yeah. I just can't believe David Arquette was two years younger. David Arquette does not look 24 in this movie. That, that's that's what's funny. It's the hot daddy stash. Yeah, dude. He looks like he's in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. But I digress, which is the thing that I do. <laughs> okay. Do you have anything else that you want to touch on then? No, I feel like we said our piece. We've apologized for an hour and six months. I know. Whatever. I, again, if you stick with us through the next couple episodes or, you know, all of them, which you should, just know that we come from a place of love and we are never trying to intentionally speak for... Well, I already said this. I'm not going to believe the point. No, uh, I'm <laughs> suggesting you should stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Unapologetic. I am unapologetic and I'm just going to keep doing it. Channel your inner goddamn Gail Weathers. I know. I'm just... Ugh, I'm so... Even though I have this, like, you know, bitchiness to me, I really don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> okay, so, Joe, uh, what are we watching next week? Next week, we're going to jump into the origin of torture porn. Ooh. Come with me, Trace. We're going to go to scary Europe for Eli Ross Hostel. Ooh. So, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and not Hostile 2, I know. we would both I rather like, talk about. I would much rather talk about Hostile 2 because it's a much better movie. But I remember liking Hostile when I saw it. I have not watched it in a very long time. And so I am looking forward, question mark, to watching it again. You end every episode with a question mark. <laughs> Is that why I did the last one too? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it's a life of uncertainty. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you can reach us both on Twitter. I am at Traced Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. Yes, that is correct. It is the letter B. And uh, you can also keep reading our stuff on Bloody Disgusting. And yeah, that's it. So um, witty closing line. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Insert witty closing line. That's the end. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs>